Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, specialist digital editor with the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, at the end of a week being described as a turning point in history. As I speak, it is one month exactly since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. The rocket and artillery attacks upon besieged Ukrainian cities continue, and the civilian carnage continues, with millions displaced and reports now of people dying of starvation in the southern port city of Mariupol. This is the second of another double episode special as we again find ourselves watching 21st century geopolitics fundamentally change before our eyes. 72 hours ago, you heard our colleagues Finbar Birmingham and Rob Delaney discussing how China would be the focus for Joe Biden and the leadership of the EU as well as NATO in high-level meetings concerning the war in Ukraine. This morning's statement was released from the heads of state and government of the 30 NATO allies, in which NATO for the first time addresses concerns that China's state-controlled media and officials are echoing Russian propaganda and misinformation concerning the war in Ukraine. We are concerned by recent public comments by PRC officials and call on China to cease amplifying the Kremlin's false narratives, in particular on the war and on NATO, and to promote a peaceful resolution to the conflict. There's much more to come on that front. But for this episode, we had planned to give more attention to events happening on this side of the planet. Little did we know, we'd end up discussing a surprise visit from China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi to India, having just said some deeply provocative things in Pakistan, and having dropped by to see the Taliban in Kabul. And then we found ourselves in an interview discussing South Korea's new president, and found ourselves rudely interrupted by the launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile from North Korea. It's been that kind of week. I'm really glad you're here along for the ride. Let's get to it. Kunal Purwit is an independent journalist based out of Mumbai, filing for the Asia Desk here at the South China Morning Post. Welcome back to the podcast, Kunal. Thank you so much, Jared. As always, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you talking about all things India and China. Indeed. Now, the last time people heard your voice on this podcast, you were discussing India's military buildup along the Himalayan border ever since those brutal hand-to-hand confrontations with Chinese troops back in 2020. Since then, it's been an uneasy truce of sorts along that contested area. This visit from Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, is this about getting China-India relations back on track? Is there another agenda? What do you know? What do we know of this visit? Jared, that's an interesting question because uh, there's not much that is known about this visit. There's an unusual level of secrecy surrounding this visit. Just to give our listeners the context, neither India nor China have officially announced this visit. And this is, you know, this is a massive visit because the, the relations between the two countries have been quite dangerously low. You know, they've, they've been, as you said, locked in a military standoff, thousands of soldiers lined up, missiles lined up, tanks facing each other within you know, a few meters of each other. So you would expect that any diplomatic breakthrough would receive, would receive attention, would receive a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of talking points, you know, from the government, not just in New Delhi, but in Beijing, except that this time there has been no official announcement even now of of the visit. I mean, now we have photos being posted by the governments, so we now know that the visit is is finally officially on. But till last night when Wang Yi actually landed in New Delhi, there was was nothing at all that was confirmed by, by either of the two governments. So, you know, not much is known as to what is, you know, what is what is really on the cards. But I think we've reached a point where we can now make very safe guesses as to what could be a part of the conversation today 
between Wang Yi and India's external affairs minister, S. Jai Shankar. Some of the things that we now know could be a part of that conversation would pertain to what is happening up north, you know, with Russia and Ukraine locked in a war and the repercussions that, you know, that both of these countries are facing down south here in Asia. India and China both have very, very strong and close ties with Russia. And, and you know, the, the, the kind of isolation that the West is, is looking to put Russia into does not augur well for either of the two countries here. So that's, that's a massive area of concern for both New Delhi and Beijing, and that's going to be high up on the agenda. What's also going to be high up on the agenda, especially from the Indian point of view, is the fact that, that the two countries will now be entering this third year of you know, the, the standoff, of the military standoff between the two countries. Now, remember, it was in May 2020 when the standoff actually began, and we are now entering April 2022. So within a, within a month's time, we would have finished two years of thousands of you know, troops standing next to each other at the borders. So that's also going to be a massive area of concern, especially for New Delhi, which has repeatedly said that it cannot have business as usual with Beijing till the time the standoff is on. Now the Western world is focused on India's relationship with Russia and China in terms of the Ukraine war right now. But I know that India's media paid very close attention to what Wang Yi had to say earlier this week at the Organization of Islamic Cooperation meeting in Islamabad in Pakistan, and specifically his comments about Kashmir. Is that going to overshadow this meeting? What is it that was of interest for India's media? It absolutely is. I mean, you know, Jared, as I said, this is the context, right, that the two countries have had terrible relations in the last two years. They've both been really struggling to make any sort of major breakthrough with its border standoff. And then finally, you have this massive diplomatic breakthrough when, when Wang Yi is you know, coming to India. Again, it's all speculation. There is no official announcement. But just the, just the evening before he's supposed to land, he goes to India's you know, traditional rival, Pakistan, and, and says that he shares the sentiments of many of the countries present there, including Pakistan, about Kashmir. You know, so, so that itself is a massive red flag for New Delhi to take because New Delhi has very clear red lines around some of the issues. Kashmir is, is on the top of that list. So when Wangi decides to go there and say this, it, it is bound to cast a shadow because it again questions really the point of this visit. You know, you cannot possibly be wanting to make a massive breakthrough and yet be willing to make a statement which could provoke anger in, in the country that you're now visiting. So this is this has been a bit of an oddball that, that China has thrown India's way. And not many in New Delhi are, are you know, able to make sense of just, just why they would do that. If, if, if Wang Yi was coming here to achieve some sort of a diplomatic breakthrough, why would he want to anger uh, the hosts, you know, just the evening before? Now, India has been categorical in, you know, in its stand about Kashmir. It has repeatedly over the years said that India believes that the whole of Jammu and Kashmir, including the parts that are currently administered by China and Pakistan, that all of it is, is, is you know, it belongs to India. And, and it's been categorical over the years. But what it did after Wang Yi made, the, made those comments is that it issued very strategic and, and very clear sort of warnings in some ways to China, where it said that, you know, no country would like India to be commenting on their internal relations as well. And last evening, it, it sent out another uh, rejoinder of sorts. And this is, again, this is interesting, right? Because why would you rebut the same statement twice? But that's exactly what India did. And, you know, India said that any, any nation which associates themselves with exercises like the kind that China did in Pakistan when it, you know, when, when Wang Yi visited the OIC conference as a guest, it said it should realize that the impact such an exercise would have on China's reputation and, you know, and went on to criticize China for what it did. So clearly there is, you know, India is making it very clear that just because they're expecting Wang Yi in New Delhi the next day, it's not going to hold back its, its words. So it's not been a very auspicious start to a major diplomatic visit is, is how I'd like to put it, Jared. Not very auspicious is a magnificent understatement, Kunal. I'd say there's many moving parts in this and, you know, the, the term strategic ambiguity is used to describe the US policy towards Taiwan, but India's strategic ambiguity with its 
long-term military cooperation with Russia, while at the same time strategically opposing China via the Quad, and then, of course, the recent history of violent military conflict with the PLA in the Himalayas. What does Modi want External Affairs Minister Jai Shankar and National Security Advisor Ajit Doval, what does he want them to get out of this meeting, do you think? I think, Jared, there are multiple, multiple, as you said, moving parts when it comes to the the very vexed ties between India, Russia and China, right? Not a lot of people can actually make sense of this. But it's important to remember that even when India and China have been locked, you know, in, in this sort of military standoff with soldiers breathing down each other's necks, India turned to Russia and Russia is a very close partner of China. So India turned to Russia for military equipment, including including the very contentious S-400 missile systems. You know, and, and Russia has agreed to do that. So Russia is actually supplying military equipment that India is now positioning along the India-China border. And, and that really sums up, in some ways, you know, the, the relationship that the three countries share. So strategic autonomy, as you know, you said the U.S. is looking at strategic ambiguity, but India has always believed that uh, its its foreign policy revolves around the mantra, in some ways, of strategic autonomy, which is that it will not let any other country decide for it what its foreign policy and what its foreign priorities should be. And this is 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 in play at this point as well. You know, so we've for the last few years we've all have been, including us at the SCMP have been talking about India's you know, perceived closeness and increasing closeness, in fact, with the U.S. But we are now seeing that you know, even it's, it's refusing to toe the line when it comes to the U.S.'s stand on Russia. India has you know, refused to condemn Russian actions, including at the UNSC as well, including at the UNGA. So India has been very clear that it's not going to come out and officially condemn all of these actions, even as the West comes together and, you know, imposes sanctions upon sanctions on on Moscow. India has done that, but India has also, again, you know, been reluctant to come out and and support Russia the way China has. And India hasn't really done that. India abstains. India doesn't vote against uh, Russia, nor does it vote with Russia. So this is really India's strategic autonomy when it comes to, you know, its, its ties between the US and Russia. But what it does, you know, amidst all of this, what India is really looking at when it comes to Wang Yi's visit is whether they'd be able to, you know, try and try and maybe improve ties, of course, because that's that's really priority number one when it comes to New Delhi. It wants to get rid of the border standoff because it's an irritant, you know, it's 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 an active military border. It 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 costs a lot of money, it costs a lot of logistics, time and effort. So India would definitely like that border to cool down a bit. But there's also something more uh, that India would like from this visit, and, and that is that India and China both have common interests in seeing a stronger Russia. India and China both are very close partners of Russia, and India, for all of its perceived closeness with the U.S., has always believed in a multipolar world. So India would be very, very, you know, very unhappy with, you know, with a Russia which is isolated, with a Russia that is weaker than what it is right now. So I, I feel like there are common interests on both sides that you know the two countries would like to would like to try and come together on. But there's also, of course, the promise of better ties diplomatically between China and India as well. Now, you know, it's important to remind our listeners that both Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister, and Xi Jinping have not had a single call in the last two years, which is which is quite a bit of a statement. You know, when when the pandemic has hit hit the world, when there is so much of geopolitical flux, the two leaders haven't spoken once. And maybe, just maybe, this visit could finally end a phone call between the two leaders. So I think I think there's a bouquet of things on India's wish list when it comes to this visit. Kanal, as you say, it's been two years since there's been a phone call between Narendra Modi and Xi Jinping, but Mr. Modi's phone has been running hot uh, with calls from uh, the leaders of Japan and Australia. In fact, there's been announcements, there's been personal representations from Kishida, from Morrison to uh, Narendra Modi this week. There's been major announcements amid reports that India, like China, has been purchasing discount oil from Russia. Is that being discussed in Indian media environment? The Indian media ecosystem is red hot. 
And I wonder just how that's playing in the, in the national narrative. So, Jared, as I said, I mean, you know, India and Russia have been friends for a very long time. And, and in, the, in the general, you know, sort of populace in India, Russia has always been looked at as a trusted friend of the past. Even, even you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, when the West would impose sanctions on India, Russia was a friend that India has always, you know, relied upon. So there's, there's a lot of goodwill for Russia when it comes to, you know, when it comes to issues like this. Having said that, you know, when, when India did decide to buy discounted crude oil, I think many in India saw it as, you know, as a way of also fulfilling our own energy needs. You know, I mean, Europe has, for, for all of its bluster, still not decided to be completely energy independent when it comes to its ties with Russia. So, so to expect a country like India to do so would, would also be something that many in India would call out uh, the West's hypocrisy on. That's number one. The other aspect is when it comes to the Quad as well. We've seen this happen in Afghanistan and we're now seeing this happen in Ukraine where the West has you know, decided to go ahead with, with, with positions that are firmly centered around its, its own self-interests. You know, when, when the U.S. decided one fine morning to withdraw from Afghanistan without consulting friends and allies, many in New Delhi were very, very worried because the direct repercussions of the U.S.'s withdrawal would be felt by countries like India. You know, it wouldn't be felt far away in the U.S., but it's felt much more in the subcontinent. So, you know, India's, India's been a bit edgy about the fact that the U.S. has taken that position. Even now, we see the NATO not really willing to extend a helping hand in the way Ukraine wants it to. You know, NATO has been very careful to keep its distance and do all it can from a distance. Uh, and, and that, I think, is somewhere also being noted by New Delhi. New Delhi is seeing how many of these institutions that were supposed to be protecting democracy, protecting, you know, free spirit, would sometimes conveniently fold up when it, when it comes to really taking the fight on. And I think that's, that's also going to be something that New Delhi will keep in mind when, when it deals with the Quad. Because remember, the Quad, you know, as much as the US has said, and as much as the, the remaining three countries have said, is, is about the Indo-Pacific. India has always, you know, been very clear and, 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 you know, India's leaders have constantly said that the Quad is not really against any other country. It stands for a multiple number of things, but it doesn't stand against anybody. And I think India would want the Quad's essence to be really that. It would want it to be a force to reckon with Indo, in the Indo-Pacific, but it wouldn't want it to be, you know, a force entirely antagonistic only towards China. And I think China senses this wedge between the Quad partners. You know, um, now US President Joe Biden has said that India's position has been somewhat shaky as against uh, the position by all of the remaining Quad partners when it comes to Russia. And I think China senses that India is not really very comfortable taking the same stance that all of the, all of the remaining Quad partners are taking. So maybe, just maybe, you know, Wang Yi might want to also explore that wedge a bit more and see whether he can push the door open slightly more than what it is today. Canal Perwit, I can only imagine how busy your evening and your weekend is going to be. We're going to follow your reporting and your analysis to come at SEMP.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Jared. Always a pleasure. Hi, I'm Jasmine, one of the SCMP podcast producers. This week's Listening Post newsletter includes podcast reviews for everyone. If you're in Hong Kong and stuck at home with not much to do, check out a podcast produced and recorded from India. It's a crime thriller that's based on the same story as the award-winning film Slumdog Millionaire. Or if you're tuning in from Australia, we've got a podcast that talks about the Chinese-Australian experience. There's discussions about food, racism, and other struggles that the Chinese diaspora faces around the world. And if you're interested in politics and national security issues, we've got the perfect podcast for you. In its latest episode, it discusses the ongoing information war that's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. Get it all on this week's Listening Post. Subscribe at scmp.com newsletter or hit the link in the description. You're about to hear a two-part segment now about China's relationship with one of its biggest economic and trading partners, South Korea. But this two-part segment comes with a bonus extra, because during this interview with my colleague Bo Eun Kim, a significant development takes place 
which has resulted in Xi Jinping announcing something unheard of in 30 years of official relations between Beijing and Seoul. As the American film director Gus Von Sant once said, everything's changing so fast, it's sometimes hard to keep up. Stay tuned to hear what happened there. You'll also be hearing from my colleague on the political economy desk, Luna Sun. She's going to unpack for us the very complicated economic relationship between South Korea, mainland China, and the United States, and how that's going to play into the first term of South Korea's newly elected and untested president, Yoon Sok Yol. Bo Eun Kim is a journalist with the Korea Times, but in February of this year, she flew to Hong Kong to work on exchange with the South China Morning Post. But of course, I'm sadly yet to meet her in person because like the rest of us, she's been working from home since then. Bo Eun Kim, we are delighted to have you on the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Now, the headline news is two weeks old, but the full impact of the results of the South Korean election are really yet to show themselves. Right now, we have a brand new president-elect for South Korea due to officially start the job in May. Bo-Earn, please tell us about this president-elect, Yoon Sok-yul. He's a relatively unknown politician to the rest of the world. Can you paint us a picture of who he is and what kind of campaign he ran? Right, so the president-elect Yoon Sung-yeol, for the entirety of his career before his election as the next president of South Korea, he's been a prosecutor, which means that he lacks experience in politics and in foreign policy. So this will prove to be a challenge for him as he takes on his role as as the next president. He'll obviously be uh, relying a lot on his advisors. Uh, Yoon is also identified as a conservative, which means that he will have South Korea more aligned with the US and Japan and less with North Korea. And this will be a definite shift from the previous Moon Jae-in administration. And as you say, uh, President Moon Jae-in's administration were dare say, dovish in terms of their foreign policy towards China, towards North Korea. But I'm wondering about this this new president-elect. It really does sound like he's that classic conservative, law and order, kind of tough guy kind of candidate. I'm wondering, was he also kind of the populist in a semi-Trumpian sense by saying that I'm not like those other politicians, I'm outside of the usual elites who run Mm. things? Was that the kind of campaign that he ran? Well, I don't think I would make the comparison with Trump, but Yoon has definitely tapped into, you know, public sentiment. And when I say public sentiment, it's about anti-sentiment. It could be towards, you know, like external countries or even just like inward towards opposite genders, because we've been witnessing a lot of that in recent years, like, you know, among younger males in their 20s, they've been showing antagonism for the female gender and also for um, North Korea and also China. So Yoon has actually kind of used this to his advantage. And during his campaign, you know, he said some controversial things and he's pledged to take some, you know, very hardline policies towards North Korea and also kind of take a step further away from China than previously. And and as you were saying, he really traded on that anti-China sentiment, really fanned those flames and he, he got fuel for the fire from the Beijing Winter Olympics that happened just before the election for South right, Korea. Right. Can you tell us a bit more about these specific kind of scandals or, or should I say incidents that helped fuel right. these kind of anti-China sentiments? There were a lot of media reports on this. Well, the first incident happened during the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics. Yeah, there, there was a lady representing China as a group They were holding up a Chinese flag and there were supposed to be different ethnic groups representing China. And this lady was wearing hanbok, which is a Korean traditional dress. And Korean viewers immediately noticed the dress 
you know, they're asking, why is the lady wearing a Korean traditional dress? And this kind of sparked an online controversy to which Chinese netizens were also responding. And then it sort of escalated to the extent that the Chinese ambassador to South Korea, Shin Haimin, he offered some explanation. He said the lady in the hanbok was supposed to represent an ethnic Korean group that comprises the Chinese population. I guess he kind of tried to, you know, patch up the growing conflict. But then later into the games, there was a short track speed skating semifinal, if I remember correctly, where a South Korean contender was promising, was disqualified for reasons that South Koreans believed were unfair. So they took their rage online and they were met with this uh, huge backlash uh, from their Chinese counterparts. And this kind of just blew up into a very, you know, big online battle war. So I think this kind of fueled the anti-sentiment in both countries that I guess exists prior to the Olympics. That's fascinating because I feel like the US or the Western world was obsessed with the social media war, the collision of mm-hmm. identity politics and geopolitics surrounding Eileen Gu. But of course, mm-hmm. meanwhile, for South Koreans, there was a whole other front on the, the social media war kind right, of opened right. up. And mm-hmm. But let's just turn back now. Since that election, he did manage to fan those flames, that populist kind of notion, use that to fuel his campaign, and now he's in power. What are analysts saying now that Yoon Suk-yeol has the presidency. Is this a turning point for South Korean relations with with Beijing? Right. So analysts are keenly observing the situation. There is a certain level of uncertainty still because the government has yet to launch. So we have several months before the new administration launches in May. But we can look for clues. And and this is what analysts that I speak to are doing. They've they've been looking into what Yoon has said and done so far. During his campaign, actually, he was asked which foreign head of state he would meet first if he got elected as president. And he said, in the order of the US, Japan, China and North Korea. And this was seen as reflecting, you know, which country he prioritizes in foreign policy. Now, Yoon has completed drawing up a transition committee, which will help transition the current administration to the new one under Yoon. This offers analysts more clues, right? Because he's selected figures who will be in charge of devising foreign policy and what kind of tendencies these figures have. So these people who will be in charge of foreign policy, they were working for previous conservative governments, including for former president Lee Myung-bak. And they are characterized by having a pro-U.S. stance and more hardline stance toward North Korea. So I think this is what analysts are looking for in the next administration's foreign policy. And can you just unpack a bit more about Yoon Suk-yeol's foreign policy aspirations? Is it true he wants South Korea to join the Quad? Right. So... During his campaign, he did state intentions for his administration, if elected, to join a more expanded grouping of Quad. We'll have to see how this really plays out because currently it is an exclusive security grouping. But Yoon has definitely expressed intentions to join more U.S.-led alliances and groupings, whether it be for security reasons or for trade. And of course, the U.S. is pushing its own sideline trade alliance in order to, as they say politely, shift supply chains away from mainland China. Is there more suggestion from South Korea about that? So the unfolding of the new administration in South Korea is taking place against a larger backdrop of the growing rivalry between the U.S. and China. And actually, Korea has been stuck between the two big powers trying to, you know, navigate which side it should take, if it should take a side at all. In Korea, there is a saying, 
the shrimp suffers in a conflict between whales, which means that like the smaller entity just suffers when there is a conflict between a larger entity. And South Korea obviously is the shrimp in this situation. And so South Korea, you know, had a tough time trying to, you know, stand on neutral turf because the U.S. is its largest security partner. And then China is its largest trading partner. So the Moon Jae-in administration just, you know, trying to take its position according to each, you know, circumstance. But uh, Yoon has definitely expressed more intention to align the country with the U.S. And this also is, I think, the case. Analysts are saying that South Korea will try to be more aligned to you know, U.S. efforts to create trade blocks in the Indo-Pacific. There is an Indo-Pacific economic framework that will launch very soon, consisting of countries in the Asia-Pacific, obviously not China. It's intended on curbing you know, China's growing influence. Actually, Yoon has expressed interest in joining this this trade group as well. It's fascinating you mentioned the old Korean saying about the the prawn and the two whales. I look at South Korea as this industrial powerhouse that's shipping huge amounts of white goods and, and cars, electronics mm-hmm. to the US, but of course primarily dependent on mainland China for the, those what we call the semi-finished right. goods as well as rare earths and, and all those materials. And we'll right. probably talk about that with our colleague Luna Sun from the Political Economy Desk. But I want to mm-hmm. ask you now about power and South Korea. Now, we normally talk about projecting power from the Korean Peninsula in terms of missiles, rockets and, and troop build-ups. But, of course, mm-hmm. South Korea commands massive power globally via K-pop and K-drama. And I Mm -hmm. take this deadly seriously because this power is manifest not just in the West but in mainland China. And you've just filed a story that looks at this and K-drama returning to Chinese TV screens. Can you tell us more about this? Right. So, you know, South Korean media content, cultural content, has enjoyed a level of popularity around the world, including in China, um, its TV shows and films, etc. But in the last five years, Korean content was restricted in China. This came after 2017, when South Korea deployed a U.S. anti-missile system known as THAAD. And Beijing was very unhappy about this because it believes that the U.S. missile defense system can look into, spy into its territory. So China actually took a series of actions following the deployment. It never, uh, you know, acknowledged that this was any form of retaliation against the deployment. But what China did after um, the deployment was curbing, you know, Korean businesses' operations in China and also um, restricting Korean content from being aired in China. And so basically this was done by, you know, having authorities not approve airing for Korean dramas and the release of Korean films in China. We've actually seen, however, uh, an easing of these restrictions recently with um, more Korean dramas becoming available on China's video streaming platforms. And actually, they've been doing quite well. I mean, the last time I checked last week, Korean dramas have been, you know, among the most viewed on some of these platforms, the newly released ones. And so I think both countries are really happy about these recent developments. Um, one factor, however, as we've been talking, the election of Yoon song yeol as South Korea's next president, who has pledged to take stronger uh, stance toward China, because he said during his campaign that the new administration would be considering further deployment of Thad, which would definitely not make China happy. If in any case this happens, China would likely take further action and it could, you know, direct restrictions toward Korean media content. So we'll have to see how things play out. But Korea is definitely 
uh, still regards China as an important diplomatic partner and also trading partner because China is by far Korea's largest trading partner. So Yoon will definitely try to balance out all of these factors. And President-elect Yoon Suk-yeol is, of course, going to need Beijing's help to uh, help calm down the neighbours in North Korea from firing off more missiles, I guess. Yoon has been quite bold in his remarks toward North Korea. And so we're going to have to, you know, watch how North Korea responds to this because the North has always kind of been on its own and saying whatever it wants, doing whatever it does. North Korea made several missile provocations this year already. And so obviously North Korea is a very important factor for the new administration. So we will have to continue keenly observing movements in North Korea. And uh, the president-elect has a very, very steep learning curve in finding out the intricacies of a foreign policy when one is president of right. South Korea. And of course, the inauguration ceremony when he officially becomes president is in May. So I guess not only will Pyongyang possibly test him and fire a few fireworks over just to see his resolve. So this is an awkward moment where in this interview, I finished with, we'd love to speak to you again. And Bo and Kim it's not even 24 hours later and here I am <laughs> back on a Zoom call with you because while we were talking, North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile into the Sea of Japan, which is actually strangely for this year, not unusual for North Korea. But what happened next was interesting. It sounds like China's President Xi Jinping is going to make history with a phone call. What is about to happen? Right. So Chinese President Xi Jinping will hold a phone call with South Korea's President-elect Yoon Suk-yeol later today. This is actually a first for a Chinese president to hold a phone call with not a South Korean president, but a president-elect. And analysts see the situation as you know china is seeing the urgency of the situation in the region uh, with the election of a figure who's promised to take a shift in you know policy toward china and also with the latest developments of north korea launching its intercontinental ballistic missile and um, you know all the powers condemning this and expressing concern over you know instability in the region obviously as one of the great regional powers china is also very invested in the situation and the discussions that will take place will prove to be very important especially as china and south korea mark their 30th anniversary of establishing diplomatic relations that is a great point you make there bo and that it sounds like Xi Jinping not only recognises the urgency of this situation to, to call his southerly neighbour, and I'm guessing just suggest there's no need to rush off for another new American missile defence system, but also to use that moment to really grapple with the symbolism of 30 years of diplomatic recognition and maybe right. just to get this on track. Can I ask you... What are your sources telling you about what's happening in Seoul with uh, Yoon Suk-yeol's transition government? Who will be speaking with Xi Jinping? The figures in the transition committee who've been appointed to devise South Korea's foreign policy under the next administration, they will likely serve key posts in the new administration when it comes to positions such as you know, foreign minister and such. Uh, so these figures will be closely you know, communicating with their counterparts in China in, in the months to come. So this phone call will be addressing key issues. It will definitely be an important one. bo Earn Kim, can I ask you, the analysts you're speaking to, how are they looking at this particular latest missile launch from North Korea? Is it a response to, to Yoon winning the presidential election or is it a signal to NATO and the US do not think about 
intervening here the way you might be thinking of intervening in Ukraine? Right. So immediately after the missile launch was detected, experts have been looking into it. And this intercontinental ballistic missile launch actually comes for the first time since 2017 because self-imposed a moratorium on launching these ICBMs in 2018. So actually the latest missile launch is you know, seen to be the most powerful. So it went the furthest, it went the highest. And the reason the U.S. has been concerned about North Korea's ICBMs is because these are capable of reaching U.S. territory. That is why they're um, you know, really closely monitoring the situation. And uh, the question really is, uh, like you asked, why? You know, why would North Korea launch this missile at this point? Analysts are saying, well, you know, a lot has been going on around the world, the COVID pandemic and the situation in Ukraine. North Korea seemingly wants to notify the world of its status as a nuclear power, a state that has nuclear weapons and is showing the world through this ICBM launch that it still has power and is able to exert power. This is what analysts are saying. Boren Kim, I've got to ask, there's no nation on this earth like the South Korean people who have become accustomed to having missiles launched over their country by the neighbours. Can I just ask you, what is the feeling like amongst the South Korean public? We hear from the generals, from the presidents. Mm -hmm. We never get a sense of public sentiment in Seoul or South Korea. Can you give us a sense of, of the reaction to, you know, even these last two months of missile launches from North Korea? Right. So I think for most South Koreans, this happens so often that it's not really a big deal. Like people don't really consider this to be big news because, I mean, even this year alone, North Korea has tested its weapons over 12 occasions, I believe. So given, you know, the frequency of, of these testings and launches, I think South Koreans have become maybe a bit oblivious of, you know, what goes on, except for, I think it was in 2010, there was a shelling of Yeonpyeong Island in the northern region. That was when there was a sense of alarm. The military was alert. People were thinking that this could actually escalate into a war. I remember that moment because I was in school and everyone was talking about it and, you know, worried. I think the level of concern is definitely a higher among foreigners, foreigners residing in South Korea. They definitely, you know, are much more sensitive about North Korea's testings and launches, maybe because they're not so... I know, familiar with the situation or accustomed to all of what happens. So they're always kind of ready to fly back to their countries and, you know, take measures when these incidents occur. But I think, yeah, for most South Koreans, they're, they're pretty cool about, you know, what happens. Yeah. Well, Bo and Kim, as I said originally in our interview before it was rudely interrupted by an ICBM launch from North Korea. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on this podcast and we look forward to, as I said yesterday, having you back on this podcast soon, <laughs> hopefully not too soon, but it's great to talk to you. And we do look forward to your analysis this weekend of this historic phone call between Xi Jinping and South Korea's president-elect as yet to be inaugurated, uh, Yoon Sok Yong. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Luna Sun is a reporter on our political economy desk. Luna, thank you for joining me. Let's talk about the economic implications of this recent election result in South Korea. How deep is that relationship with mainland China? 
Yeah, definitely. So China has long had a close relationship with South Korea. China has been South Korea's largest trading partner for 17 consecutive years, and about a quarter of South Korea's total exports was to China last year. But now, with the election of the new president, there have been a lot of um, uncertainties and instabilities between the China-South Korea relationship in the future. Because compared to his predecessor, who had maintained a relatively mild stance on China and who argued that South Korea should maintain an equal distance to both the U.S. and China, the new president has taken a more aggressive stance on China and said that South Korea should definitely have a closer relationship with his ally, the United States. So many experts have argued that the new president will likely be carried away by anti-China sentiments. In the worst case scenario, he might fully turn to the United States and end this diplomatic strategy of keeping equal distances between the United States and China. That's fascinating, Luna, because you get the feeling that this this brand new president with uh, populist leanings is about to learn a very cruel lesson about the realities of China's might in natural resources, particularly in rare earths and at all these kind of minerals that South Korea is dependent on for its high-tech economy. When you say about Yun Sok yeol potentially pivoting towards the US economically, was there discussion from him during this election campaign about supply chain issues and that whole idea same thing as Joe Biden pivoting away from China as the major supply chain provider to something else. Is that what he's talking about, that kind of issue? Yun Sogyo has definitely mentioned reducing the dependence on outside sources, which include um, Japan and China. But long before his election or even before his predecessors, South Korea has been on discussing the supply chain security and the reduction of outside dependence. So in 2020, South Korea launched this materials, parts, and equipment 2.0 strategy, which stressed the diversification to reduce reliance. And the government invested a bunch of money to develop the next generation of strategic technologies, including future cars, biohealth, and the manufacturing of semiconductors. And that issue of resources, rare earths being imported from mainland China is one thing, but what did he have to say at the consumer level in terms of you know, buying you know, finished goods from mainland China? Is there any sense of you know, economic nationalism in his rhetoric? There's definitely talks about bringing the manufacturing back into um, South Korea, but the country just simply doesn't have enough capacity to make everything he needs inside the country. So South Korea has been heavily reliant on China for raw material imports, and they're just not a substitute market for South Korea as big as China yet. So China is something that South Korea can't afford to lose to maintain its economic growth. Luna, this podcast started out documenting the trade war and South Korea kind of was a part of that because the initial tariffs that Trump brought in was all about washing machines that were being made in South Korea and shipped to the USA. This whole trade war over these years between the US and China, how has South Korea navigated this? So over the years, the trade between China and South Korea has maintained relatively stable, and the trade war between China and U.S. has not affected greatly on the trade relationship between South Korea and its biggest neighbor, China, despite a little mishap in 2016 after the deployment of FAD. Because China is such a significant market for South Korea, and a lot of South Korea's domestic production relies heavily on imports from China. So China's market is something that it cannot afford to lose, despite its close relationship with China's competitor, the United States. Luna, one of the biggest arguments we saw in recent years was back in 2016, when South Korea deployed the THAAD missile system that's manufactured by the US, uh, Beijing was enraged by this. Has there been any comment by Yoon Sok-yul 
in this election campaign or, or subsequently since taking power about either increasing or decreasing this controversial THAAD missile system? Yeah, he has already promised an additional deployment of THAAD to counter attacks from North Korea. And in addition, he is also expected to join the U.S.-led trade group called Indo-Pacific Economic Framework that aimed at reorienting supply chains away from China. This is another one of his moves that shows his pro-America stance. In fact, South Korea and China's trade has long been susceptible to geopolitics. And with his promise of another deployment, the relationship and trade between the two countries could face more tests in the months to come. And Luna, please excuse my ignorance of the South Korea's political system, but as I understand, he's the president-elect right now. When does Yoon Suk-yeol officially become president of South Korea? He will come into office in May, so in a little bit over a month. Well, no doubt there'll be some major announcements he will make after he announces his cabinet, I guess. And by then, we'll be, of course, coming back to you for more reports and what the business community and the international investment community think about those choices. Luna Sun, thank you so much. Thank you, Jared. That's all for this week's episode of China Geopolitics. As ever, I implore you to check with our website at scmp.com for the latest updates on the developing news and for the best analysis throughout the weekend of events in Europe, as well as Beijing's historic diplomatic overtures to India and South Korea. Thanks, as ever, to the fabulous producer of this podcast, Jasmine Zer. It's her birthday this weekend, and like the rest of us in Hong Kong right now, she gets to go nowhere fun to celebrate. Happy birthday, Jasmine. We're both writing the weekly Listening Post newsletter that comes out each Friday night. We'd love you to subscribe and get it delivered to your inbox. Have a great weekend. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.